0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, Episode 226, Connecticut Coastal Raids of 1779. Last week, I discussed the fighting at Stony Point, New York, in July of 1779. At the same time the British and Continentals were struggling over New York, the British also launched a series of coastal raids against Connecticut towns. A part of the reason was to attack towns that supported the privateer ships that continually harassed British shipping in and out of New York and throughout the region. Both Stony Point and the Connecticut raids were part of a larger strategy by British General Henry Clinton to draw out the Continentals from their defenses in the mountains of northern New Jersey and New York. The British still hoped to draw the Americans into a general action on favorable terms to the British. As I mentioned last week, Secretary of State Lord Germain in London continued to put pressure on the British commander to defeat the Continentals, despite the fact that he had taken away much of the army to fight in other parts of the empire. Germain also wanted to see many more coastal raids in New England to weaken American morale for the continuing war effort. Germain had promised to send Clinton another 6,000 reinforcements in the summer of 1779, but those were still just promises. Clinton had to make do with the force he had, the majority of which were Hessians and local loyalist regiments. While Clinton was focused on taking Stony Point, he left Major General William Tryon in command of the force that would be raiding Connecticut. Tryon, who I've discussed before, had been a colonial governor before the war and remained governor of New York, although martial law left him with little to do in that capacity. Of course, before his career as a royal governor, he had been an experienced regular officer in the British Army and still retained a commission and was in fact promoted to Major General in America to command troops. This raid would not be Tryon's first attack on Connecticut. Back in 1777, General Tryon had led the raids against Danbury to destroy the American supply depot there. That attack, which I discussed back in Episode 135, led to the death of Continental General David Wooster and the wounding and promotion of General Benedict Arnold to Major General. Ever since the Danbury Raid, General Tryon had been pushing for additional raids into New England, particularly nearby Connecticut. Tryon had been a firm believer since the beginning in the use of brutal force against civilians who dared to defy royal authority. It had led him to fight the Battle of Alamance even before the war back in 1771 when he was still governor of North Carolina. He had also tried to use similar tactics against the Green Mountain Boys in what he considered New York before the war because the Green Mountain Boys refused to accept New York's control of the land that later became the state of Vermont. Tryon was a firm believer that the only way to crush a rebellion was to burn rebel towns and make these people suffer. This put Tryon at odds with the military commander, first General William Howe and now General Henry Clinton, both of whom wanted to focus on military targets and not go after civilians. Like many British officers, Tryon complained to officials in London that their commanders were not aggressive enough to win the war. Tryon also wanted to resign as governor of New York and to get a real commission as major general in the regular army, not just a general in America. In 1779, the king had approved his commission as a major general in America but had not allowed him to resign as governor and did not grant him the permanent commission in the regular army that he desired. As part of his efforts to resign, Tryon also requested permission to return to England. He cited various health and family reasons for wanting to do so. Finally, in early 1779, Germain informed Tryon that General James Robertson would replace him in New York, allowing Tryon to return to England. Upon receiving word of this, Tryon changed his mind and asked to remain in America for a few more months. His health and family issues suddenly evaporated as the 1779 military campaign had begun to take focus. The reason for Tryon's change of attitude was that General Clinton seemed to have come around on the idea of raising some civilian towns. In February 1779, Clinton approved Tryon's raid on Horseneck Landing, Connecticut, that I discussed back in Episode 211. By summer, Clinton had approved Tryon's proposals to take a larger force against the Connecticut coast. Tryon's 1779 attack would be a larger raid with more men and hitting more towns. He assembled a force of about 2,600 soldiers, a mix of regulars, Hessians, and Loyalists for the coastal raids. Commodore George Collier, recently returned from his Chesapeake Raid, see episode 221, commanded the fleet which carried the soldiers across the Long Island Sound to the Connecticut shore. General Tryon divided his force into two divisions. The first, primarily made up of British regulars and some Hessian Jaegers, came under the command of British General George Garth. Tryon personally commanded the other division, consisting mostly of Loyalist regiments and supported by Hessians. The fleet departed New York on July 3rd. It took over a day to reach its first destination, New Haven, Connecticut. The locals in New Haven were preparing to celebrate Independence Day on July 5th, with the 4th having been a Sunday. The British fleet arrived on the evening of the 4th. A signal gun fired at 10 p.m. at first sight of the British fleet but by midnight the entire fleet was at anchor. General Tryon actually had leaflets printed ahead of time to inform the residents of New Haven that the town still lay within the grasp of British power and that the town had only been spared for so long because the British had been so lenient with them. However, the ungrateful, ungenerous, and wanton insurrection would be tolerated no longer. Those who failed to remain in their homes and ready to proffer proof of their penitence and voluntary submission, could expect to feel the wrath of the king's soldiers. At around 5 a.m. on July 5th, the British disembarked about 1,500 men under General Garth on the western shore of New Haven Harbor. They also landed for field pieces and then marched unopposed to West New Haven Green. A few locals, including a Yale professor, took a few potshots at the soldiers, but nothing that really led to a full battle. That same day, the other half of the force under General Tryon landed on the eastern shore of the harbor. Yale University President Ezra Stiles observed the landings through a telescope from the steeple of the university chapel. He began ordering the removal of some valuables from the school He also noted that some people turned out to oppose the British, some stayed home, and some Tories even turned out to join with the British. Still others fled to nearby towns. By the afternoon, the British forces began plundering New Haven. The soldiers plundered both Patriots and Loyalist houses. There were stories of soldiers cutting the necklaces off of women's necks and stealing anything of value, they also burned homes and engaged in general destruction. According to General Garth, he had orders from Tryon to destroy the town, but said that he only burned a few public buildings, sparing most of the private homes. He also seized six cannons from a privateer ship in the harbor. The following day, July 6th, both divisions continued to plunder New Haven. Again, there was no large-scale organized militia resistance only a few potshots from buildings which were promptly burned. By the end of the day, the British returned to their ships and sailed away. On the morning of July 7th, the fort near Black Rock in Fairfield, Connecticut, fired its warning at the sight of the British fleet offshore. Once again, the British disembarked and began to march toward the center of town. The militia around Fairfield turned out to resist. Given their small numbers, the militia could not pose much defense to the thousands of invading forces, but they tore up bridges and fired on the column from behind fences. This didn't really slow up the British column, but the British took some casualties, chased off the attackers, and continued to march into Fairfield. The attacks on the column annoyed the British to the point that Tryon allowed his troops to loot and burn the entire town. The soldiers stole anything of value and burned what they could not carry away. Many of the soldiers managed to find liquor and get drunk, yet continued their burning and looting well into the night. Tryon later justified the destruction as retaliation for the militia who fired on his troops. As I said, the destruction continued well into the night, with most of the town's inhabitants having fled or remaining in hiding. The attackers then got a few hours of rest the following morning, hearing rumors that a larger brigade was marching to confront them, Tryon once again reboarded the ships in the fleet and sailed away. According to Tryon's records, they burned 83 houses, 54 barns, 47 storehouses, two churches, and two schools, as well as the courthouse and jail. From Fairfield, the British sailed back across Long Island Sound to Huntington, New York, on Long Island. The burning of Fairfield had taken less than 24 hours, but was the end of six days and nights of sailing and raiding the coasts along Connecticut. So Tryon gave his men two days rest and time to recover at Huntington on Long Island. With the troops rested and ready for another attack, Collier once again ferried the army back across the Sound, this time to Norwalk, Connecticut. The soldiers arrived on July 10th, but did not begin their attack until the following day. As they had in the earlier attack, General Garth led his division up the west side, while General Tryon led a second division up the east side. The attackers began their march before dawn. As with the raids of the two prior towns, the British landing met relatively little resistance. A group of about 50 Continentals and militia under the command of Captain Stephen Betts made a stand on Grumman Hill, but had no real chance against more than a thousand attackers. The Americans withdrew after a few volleys, since they were in danger of being surrounded. During the march, British General Garth commented on the constant harassment from enemy fire by local militia. The locals took shots at the column and then fled. It was an annoyance, but not really going to slow down the column. The two British columns converged near the town green and then faced another firefight from the north where a group of Americans fired on them from an area simply known as the Rocks. Having dispatched the enemy, the British began to plunder and burn the town. Reports indicate that they burned 80 houses, 87 barns, 17 shops, 4 mills, and 2 churches. The British also seized or sank several ships in the harbor took prisoners of some locals, most of whom would later die in New York prison ships. The British did not linger in Norwalk. Washington had deployed General Samuel Holden Parsons to Connecticut to challenge these British raids. By this time, Parsons had assembled nearly a thousand Continentals and militia and was marching toward Norwalk to challenge the British there. Although the total British raiding party still outnumbered the American force by about three to one, General Tryon had no real interest in a full-scale battle. His mission, as he saw it, was simply to wreak havoc on the towns along the coasts. The men completed their destruction within a few hours and returned to their ships and sailed away that same day. In these raids, General Tryon had avoided a major confrontation, but the presence of General Parsons made it clear that the Continentals were preparing to confront further raids along the Connecticut coast. Even so, after Tryon returned to his base at Huntington on Long Island, he was preparing to launch an attack on a fourth town. But before he could do so, he received orders from General Clinton to return with his men to New York City. Tryon considered his raids to be a great success. On July 14th, he reported the destruction that he had inflicted on the rebel towns. In accomplishing this destruction, he reported that his own force had suffered relatively few casualties, 26 killed, 90 wounded, and 32 missing. General Clinton, however, was not pleased. He saw the raids as primarily attacking civilians, something he termed as making war on women and children. Not only did the commander find such raids dishonorable, he believed that they harmed the overall war effort since regaining the support of the general population was critical to reasserting British governance over the colonies. General Tryon supported the alternative view. He believed the only way the British would ever be able to reassert authority was to show the populace what life was like when they rejected the protection of the king's peace. Rebellious colonies needed to suffer in order to understand the power of the British government and understand why they needed to submit. Clinton told Tryon that he disobeyed orders by burning towns. This does not seem to be the case, though. There was no record of Clinton giving any specific orders not to engage in such pillaging. In fact, Tryon recounts Clinton telling him that Clinton knew that Tryon would burn towns unless Clinton gave him explicit instructions not to do so, and that he never gave any such instructions. Tryon seemed to take this as turning a blind eye to what had to be done. Tryon did apologize for burning the churches, which he characterized as inadvertent. He also used the excuse that his soldiers had received gunfire from the buildings that they destroyed. While this may have been true in a few cases, it does not seem plausible that nearly every building in Fairfield and Norwalk was used for enemy attacks. Tryon and Clinton simply had very different views on how to prosecute the war. In fact, Tryon's position seemed to have more support from the Ministry in London. Secretary of State Lord George Germain voiced regular support for wreaking destruction along the coasts. Since Britain could not secure territory in New England, they could at least use the navy to blockade their trade and use the army to destroy coastal towns just as Tryon had done. This strategy was backed by Lord Sandwich and the Board of Admiralty, which believed that after years of misery and suffering, the colonists would eventually break and would sue for peace, bringing the return of royal authority, if only to bring an end to all the destruction. There were certainly many moderates who disagreed with this strategy, but most of them were not in the ministry by this time. The ministry in Britain had largely been purged of any moderates and was composed of hardliners. So, when Germain heard about the raids, he only had praise for Tryon's actions. Given the support of officials in London, Clinton could not take any actions or even formally reprimand Tryon for his actions. Clinton, however, did not trust Tryon with another independent command after these raids When General Cornwallis returned from England later in the year, Clinton favored him for command, while Tryon criticized Cornwallis for being too constricted to prosecute the war in the way necessary to win. In other words, Tryon believed Cornwallis also opposed waging war on the civilian population. Months later, when Clinton and Cornwallis left for South Carolina, General Tryon became the senior commander British officer in New York. However, Clinton left Hessian General Neiphausen in overall command, with Tryon only responsible for the few regulars who remained in New York. Clinton simply did not trust Tryon in any position where Tryon had any discretion. Of course, the Patriots widely condemned the raids as proof that the British were unfit to govern. They were no better than barbarians who cared nothing for the citizenry. They were not trying to rule by consent, but rather by military force, the mark of a tyrant. Patriot newspapers across the continent used these raids as a way to encourage new enlistments. The reason that General Clinton had supported the raids at all, even if not the level of destruction levied, was that he had hoped that the Continentals would be forced to deploy troops from the mountains around West Point to protect the Connecticut coast. This would give Clinton a better opportunity to bring about the general action that he wanted on favorable territory, or perhaps even allow him to capture West Point if Washington left it without too many defenders. Washington was under great pressure to deploy part of his army to Connecticut after these raids. General Trumbull sent Washington a series of letters imploring him to do just that. Washington, however, refused to take the bait. In early July, the British still held Stony Point, and Washington recognized that weakening his defenses at West Point would only make him vulnerable there. Washington did send General Parsons, but he mostly relied on Parsons to recruit local militia to provide any defense to the coastal raids. Washington was much more focused on retaking Stony Point, which I discussed last week. The British had deployed thousands to capture Stony Point in May, after doing so, they mostly pulled back to New York City, leaving only the few hundred men to defend the area. Days after Tryon completed his coastal raids in Connecticut, Washington unleashed General Wayne and his forces to recapture Stony Point, which I also discussed last week. In short, Washington failed to walk into the trap that Clinton had hoped to set for him. He sacrificed the Connecticut towns in order to keep the British in check along the Hudson River. He even surprised the British by recapturing Stony Point, albeit temporarily. Although the Continentals did not hold Stony Point, the loss of that British outpost was a cause for great celebration in America, and it meant the attempts to use the coastal raids to crush American morale had very little impact. For the British, the lack of any real strategic success in this mission did not mean they were ready to completely give up and we'll follow this up more next week as the British continue their efforts along the New England coast with what became known as the Penobscot Expedition. This episode is supported by the food delivery service Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter, Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Kurt Avard. The American Revolution podcast has grown far larger than I ever imagined when I started this project over four years ago, and the expenses related to it have also grown along with it. I really am so grateful that I've been able to keep everything freely available, nothing behind a paywall, and with very limited advertising. And that is all thanks to people who have stepped up and made a pledge of support. That has made all the difference to me. If you can afford as little as $2 a month, I'd really appreciate it if you could go to patreon.com, look up the American Revolution podcast, and make a pledge. Every little bit really does help. And if you would prefer a one-time gift, I have links to PayPal and Venmo on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Thanks again to everyone who has stepped up to help. This week I talked about the various raids on Connecticut Towns that the British hoped would draw the Continentals out of their mountain defenses in New York and New Jersey. The British conducted raids with relatively few losses, but they did not convince the Continentals to leave their defenses and only gave more ammunition to patriot propaganda about the British being unfit to rule because they attacked civilians and engaged in wanton destruction befitting a barbarian horde. The British military leadership was never sold on the idea of a brutal full-war approach. So these half-measures at full-war seemed only to raise the ire of the enemy. Although there were supporters of the total war approach in London, the highest-ranking officer in America that seemed to support it was the guy we talked about today, William Tryon, the general who led the raids. Tryon had been a longtime supporter of the idea that a ruler must be feared by those that he rules. It led him to take the tough line against the rebels at Alamance before the war, when he was governor of North Carolina. It led him to take a tough line against the Green Mountain Boys, when he was governor of New York. And once the war began, he once again wanted to take a tough line against those who were in rebellion against the king. Going after the support system of the rebels, that is, their homes, their food, their families, could be an efficient way to suppress a rebellion if you're willing to rule by fear rather than consent. We will see that the Americans actually used a similar tactic to this against the Native Americans in a few weeks when I cover the Sullivan campaign in upstate New York. As a strategy, though, this total war approach requires a large and reliable military to keep that fear alive. Once you have put your foot on the neck of those being ruled, you cannot easily remove that foot and expect the victim not to want to retaliate. It was not necessarily a sense of morality that kept British leaders from rejecting this total war approach. It was the reality that Britain simply could not afford to keep such a large standing army all over the North American continent in order to rule by fear in the long term. That is what kept Tryon's approach in the minority among senior military leaders like Generals Howe and Clinton. If you want to read more about William Tryon, my book recommendation this week is William Tryon and the Course of Empire, A Life in British Imperial Service, by Paul David Nelson. This biography covers Tryon's early military experience, his time as royal governor of North Carolina and New York before the war, as well as his service during the Revolution and his post-war years living in Canada. The book was first published in 1990. The author, Nelson, is now retired after teaching history at Berea College for most of his life. As I said, if you want to read more about William Tryon, look for the book William Tryon and the Course of Empire. My online recommendation is a booklet that was published in 1879 for the centennial of these raids. It is called the British Invasion of New Haven, Connecticut, together with some account of their landing and burning of the towns of Fairfield and Norwalk, July 1779, by Charles Townsend. The book looks at the coastal raids in more detail and includes a fair amount of primary resources. You can find it on archive.org, or as always, I've included direct links on my website and blog. My question this week asks, did Benjamin Franklin oppose slavery? Well, like many men of his era, Franklin's views on slavery changed over time. As a young man, Franklin owned slaves. He had slaves who worked in his printing shop and also as house servants. He owned a slave who was employed as a house servant in Philadelphia as late as 1774, This was not a personal servant, but someone who assisted his wife, Deborah, who lived in Philadelphia, while Franklin was away in London for many years. We don't know for certain how many slaves he may have owned in total over the course of his life, but there are records of at least two. Like other newspaper editors of his day, Franklin also carried ads for slave auctions in his newspaper, as well as ads looking to recapture runaway slaves. Over time, Franklin began writing, both publicly and privately, about his opposition to slavery. He met many men, both in America and Britain, who supported the abolition of slavery, even though this was decidedly a minority view before the Revolution. In 1772, Franklin was living in London when the case of Somerset v. Stewart held that British common law did not recognize slavery and that slavery could only exist where it was explicitly authorized by statute. Shortly after the release of this opinion, Franklin wrote an article for the London Chronicle, which condemned slavery and the slave trade as morally wrong. Throughout the Revolutionary War, Franklin occasionally spoke out against slavery in letters, but his priority was independence. Slavery was seen as a divisive issue among the states even leaders who were very clearly opposed to slavery did not emphasize this issue at the time. The focus was on keeping the states united in the war against Britain. The last thing any of the founders wanted to do was push any agenda so far that it divided the states and led to a British victory. When Pennsylvania abolished slavery in 1780, Franklin was still in France, serving as a commissioner representing the Continental Congress at the Court of Versailles. After the war, when Franklin returned to America, he wrote mostly privately against slavery and the slave trade. In 1787, he helped form the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery. Again, though, even in 1787, this did not seem to be the most important issue for him in his life. That same year, at the Constitutional Convention, Franklin supported the Compromise Document, which at least tacitly recognized the authority of states to maintain slavery and which protected the slave trade for at least another 20 years. Again, the issue of union overrode any attempts to force abolition on unwilling states. A few years later, in 1790, Franklin, by this time a private citizen, submitted a petition to Congress calling for the abolition of slavery. That same year, he wrote an abolition essay for the Federal Gazette. It was published only a few weeks before his death. So, by the end of his life, Franklin had become an outspoken abolitionist. For most of his life, however, he found the institution of slavery at least tolerable. He had no problems participating in the slave system and at best expressed only a few moral qualms on the topic. Even after his opposition to slavery became public, Franklin believed there were more pressing issues in establishing the United States rather than working to abolish slavery. It was only at the very end of his life, once the U.S. was established under the Constitution, that he began pushing very publicly and prominently for the full abolition of slavery. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Quora. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.